Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's start with a really, really interesting article that was published just a few days ago in the journal Science. Now, there's nature and there's science, and these are the most prestigious scientific magazines. They're very, very general, and of course, they have all sorts of subsets. But when you get into, this is like hitting the red carpet in science to be, in, in the field of science to be published in the journal Science. And they have lots of contenders. This article is uh, really amazing because it's a controlled study. We have in humans on calorie restriction and because of the findings. So this was uh, looking at moderate calorie uh, restrictions in humans. We can keep monkeys in a cage. We can, you know, control what we feed our mice. And the data in mammals is really clear. In fact, the data in worms is clear. If you are calorie restricted, if you eat as much as you want, you die sooner than if you are calorie restricted. But people don't like calorie restriction. All it takes is a walk around the mall to see that. And this country in particular is suffering from an epidemic of obesity and overweight. And it's impacting us from everything from our response to a physiological challenge like COVID to our uh, ability to remain, well, active as we age, which is one of the key determinants of avoiding Alzheimer's disease. So calorie restriction is hard. And so you get people um, like uh, Lumba talking about, well, we're going to do fasting, fasting mimicking diets. And yeah, he's got some data and maybe that works. And you've got people who have taken the calorie-restricted, time-restricted eating. That's something that I actually think is quite doable, and it does more or less manage to restrict the absolute calories that you're intaking. But you do have to be careful not to hit yourself with too much of a carb load. If you're eating one meal a day, that better be a low-carb meal in terms of starch and sugar, or you're not going to get that much benefit from it. Now, let's go back to the study. They had 200 study participants, and they were asked to reduce their calorie intake by 14%. the other group was was told to continue to eat as usual, and they did testing on the group. The main thing they wanted to see whether is if calorie restriction can be a, achieved in the wild and whether it's as beneficial for humans as it is for lab animals. And these were free-range humans, so this is really coming close to what it is possible for people to do. They also wanted to understand what analytes were changing and what was going on in the body, and They got a big surprise on that one. Previous research has shown that calorie restriction in mice can increase infections. So they wanted to pay careful attention to the immune system. And we know that low-grade chronic inflammation in humans is a major trigger for chronic diseases. And therefore, it has a negative negative effect on lifespan. So in in this study, they were asking, what is calorie restriction doing to the immune and metabolic systems? And if it is beneficial, how can we figure out and harness the endogenous pathway that mimics its effect in humans? Well, they started by analyzing the thymus, 
The thymus, you ask. Well, what's that? Well, the thymus is a gland that sits above the heart, and it's the gland that makes T cells. It's very, very big in a newborn. And as we age into adulthood, it shrinks down to something essentially the size of a ping pong ball, but not as not as much volume. It is, however, critically important because it makes those T cells. And the thymus ages at a faster rate than other organs. So by the time healthy adults reach the age of 40, about 70% of their thymus is is just fatty infiltrated and not functional. And it, therefore, as it ages, the thymus produces fewer and fewer T cells. And as we get older, we begin to see that. The, we It is harder for us to fight new pathogens. The new T cells are the ones that can be trained. You know the old, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Well, you can't teach an old T cell new tricks either. And if we want to be able to teach our T cells how to fight something, we need new ones that can be trained. The training process is interesting. And I'll just digress for just a moment to say that there are amoebas wandering around in our tissues called macrophages. And they, when they see something foreign, they engulf it and break it down into subfragments, and then they convert into something called a dendritic cell. The dendritic, because it looks a lot like a nerve with all of these protrusions coming off of it. And at the end of each of those protrusions, there's a chemical attractant that attracts these new baby T cells, and there's a signal saying, bite this. And then there's a bit of the bacterial fragment or the viral fragment that the macrophage, now dendritic cell, harvested. And so that's how I, I, I just back there in one of those 1950s movies where they're chasing somebody with dogs and the guy has a handkerchief or a glove and he gives it to the hound and the dog sniffs it and sort of nods his head and starts barking and runs off in the direction. And that's what's going on with the T-cells. They are primed and essentially sicked on that particular chemical signal, that particular fragment of the body of the virus or the fragment of the body of the bacteria, and it's going to go off and hunt that and kill it. So if you can't train new T cells, this explains why older people, particularly the elderly, are at much greater risk for illnesses, particularly illnesses they haven't encountered before. So in this study, the team used MRI MRI imaging to determine if there were functional differences between the thymus glands of those who were restricting calories and those who were not. And they found that after two years of calorie restriction, the thymus glands in the limited calorie group had less fat and greater functional volume. So they were producing more T cells than they had been at the start of the study. So this is really important. The thymus can recover. On the other hand, they did not see a change in the thymus and by inference in T-cell production. This is a rejuvenation in the thymus, and we had really no evidence prior to this study that this happened, but it's a very big deal that it does. It's a dramatic effect, and they were very curious about what the genes might be doing, what was, what was going on there. So when they sequenced the genes in the immune cells that, that the thymus, that the different thymuses were making, they weren't different. The gene expression was the same. So it wasn't what was circulating in the blood. It's really in the tissue 
microenvironment, the tissue of the fat. Now, the body fat of the participants undergoing calorie restriction, they checked it at the beginning of the study, after one year and after two. And remember I said that the thymus is 70% fat by the time you're 40. Well, body fat hosts a robust immune system, and there are several types of immune cells in fat. And when they become activated, they become a source of inflammation. They make inflammatory signals. This is part of what this is part of the problem we see with an increased risk of infection and cancer in uh, people who are obese. More fat cells equals more inflammation. They found a remarkable change, several remarkable changes in the gene expression of the fatty tissue in the in the fasting group, and these changes were sustained through the second year. So. Some of the genes that were turned on are those that are implicated in extending life in animals, such as the SIRT2N gene. But there were also unique calorie restriction mimicking targets that maybe improve metabolic and anti-inflammatory response in humans. So they went, they went, okay, what genes are being activated? What are, what's happening here? And which are the pivotal ones? And they honed in on one, which is called PLA2G7 or group A platelet-activating factor acetylhydrolase. So it's an enzyme. And this gene is significantly inhibited following calorie restriction. So in other words, if you re- this doesn't get made in the situation where there's calorie restriction. And it's primarily produced, surprise, surprise, by the immune cells, the macrophages, the ones that were in the beginning of that whole pathway of how do you train T-cells. So they thought, I wonder if we could reduce this in or block it somehow and mimic this benefit. So they programmed up some reduced PLA to G7 mice because that's what we do nowadays. And they found that the results were similar to what they saw with calorie restriction. And also the thymus glands of these mice were functional for a longer time. The mice were protected from diet-induced weight gain, and they were protected from age-related inflammation. This compound, PLA2G7, targets the NLRP3 inflammasome, and this is a a gene controller for a host of inflammatory genes. So it, when it, when this is made by the, by its, by the DNA in the body, it goes into the nucleus of other cells and it starts a cascade. It's kind of like a programming suite. You know, you have your, you have your, uh, your word processor and you have your drawing program. Well, uh, think of all the functions that are in a word processor or in a drawing program. And now imagine that we're talking about transpo- transcribing genes and putting them out there into the cells. Well, the inflammasome does just that. It transcribes, it turns on the transcriptions of inflammatory genes and puts those out there to, to do their thing as inflammatory products like prostaglandins, like uh, leukotrienes, like uh, interferons. And all of these things are just floating around increasing inflammation. So it may be possible, and we know inflammation is so, uh, so linked to aging, that it may be possible to manipulate this 
and get the benefits of calorie restriction without having to actually restrict calories. But in the short run, anyone with a short, who has a short lifespan, whose, you know, family members die at, at uh, 60 or something like that, it, it's locked. Um, so it could be a, a substantial issue. And I believe that I have caller number one. Hello? Hi. Hi. Hello. Good evening, Dr. Don. Yes, hi. hi. This is Sandy. Hi. Hi. Um, this is Sandy Reckenmacher, and I'm calling to um, let people know about an awesome uh, program that's coming to Santa Cruz. It's called Community RX Program. It's for anybody who wants to learn uh, more about eating plants, eating more plants. Um, and this program is also uh, incredible for people who have serious medical conditions, heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes, etc. Um, the program teaches us how to enjoy more delicious, nutrient-rich, and health-protective, immune-boosting, plant-based meals. And it's, fully supported. it's a fully supported setting. So if you were to sign up, uh, you would not only get uh, a book and a DVD, that tells about uh, the program. You'd also get local support, 10 days of online education and motivational lessons. Um, again, it's, there's a, it's online, but there is a contingency of people, and I'm one of them, as a supportive community locally. We're going to have uh, three chances to get together at in-person events, outdoors, of course, and so we can figure out uh, what your needs are and give you some um, wonderful tastes of what plant-based meals can taste like. Oh, so you're going to so, feed them too, huh? Uh, yeah. Well, they, there are three events, and some of them are potlucks because we want to see their skills develop as plant-based uh, cooks. And um, um, lots of recipes that are offered in the program. I mean, it's an amazing program. It's, if, if you don't know anything, or if you, even if you do know about plant-based eating, it's an opportunity just to glean so much more information, recipes, support, and just have a go at it. And what it, we want to do is want to work with a doctor so that you can have your pre- and post-testing. Um, it can test you know, just so your um, metabolic... Uh, BMI, like that's for uh, body mass index for your weight and type, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, and blood sugar. So we test that before and after. Mm-hmm. And in 10 days, you should see incredible results. And so this is what we want to show people. It kind of follows uh, this old ancient <laughs> uh, Greek uh, man. Uh, it was Hippocrates. He was the father of modern medicine. And he said, let food be thy medicine. And now the science, the nutrition science, is catching up and showing, yeah, Mother Nature has got to really get a good get on this whole thing and wants to show how uh, eating more plants can be your medicine. So this is um, working with a doctor and also showing you how Mama Nature knows what she's talking about. Well, it sounds um, wonderful. I wanted to ask a question. I'm, I'm sure that there must be yeah. a fee for uh, this because... You know, it's a lot of work to put something like oh, yeah. this together. And I wanted to uh-huh. know if scholarships were available for uh, people who were low income, demonstrably so, because that is one of the groups that, uh, you know, really benefits is the challenge of eating a high plant-based diet when you have limited income. So, Yeah, okay, that's good, a good question. Um, the answer to the question is that there's... Uh, a, a price of $124 for this whole course. It's a 10-day course. I guess, again, it comes with many uh, references and books and 
other um, support tools. Uh, it can be one twenty four if you want to get some meal starters. That's another thirty dollars, so one fifty four. But it's up to you. You can do it either way. There are many different meal plans that come with it, so you have you can choose through, and that's that's included in the cost. And for people who need a scholarship, there are partial scholarships available. So we want to help people as much as we can so that, you know, everybody, no matter who you are, can learn so much more about how to eat. And um, this um, program starts on March tw- uh, 12th, but the sign-ups close on Mon- uh, Monday, February 28th. So we want to just make sure that you get signed up by the February 28th so we can order the supplies that you will be needing. All right. um, if you'd like to connect with uh, some more information, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can search online uh, Eat for the Earth, and when you come to the Eat for the Earth website, there's a little menu and it says Initiatives, and you go to Initiatives and it shows Community Rx. That's the name of the program, Community, Community Rx. Rx. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise you can uh, simply uh, email me and let me know what your needs are and I can uh, respond and send you um, some links to uh, a couple of really short videos to tell you all about the program and I'll also show you all the things that the program includes if you want to, you know, sometimes I like to see it in print so I can digest it that way. Yeah, so I did, email, I, I, go ahead, I'm going to have you give it to you an email, but before you do that, I just want to let the audience know that I did go to the website and check this out, and it does look legit and useful. Yeah, it is. It's incredible. It's totally backed by it's science-based, ev- uh, evidence-based science. Um, it is. It's incredible. I mean, I'm just so excited that it's finally come to Santa Cruz. Okay, what's that email? So, yeah, so my email is all one word: simply nutritious. So you have to know how to spell simply nutritious, <laughs> and then it's at gmail.com. Easy as that. My name is Sandy. And so, yeah, if you have need to uh, get more information, uh, e- I can email it to you. I can email you a um, flyer, and you can see the flyer and go from there. You'll definitely need to connect with your doctor so you can get the pre and post test. And the doc- there's so many doctors now out there that are they're just getting so excited about more mm-hmm. people asking about eating more plants. So uh, no, right. no problem finding a doctor if you need to find one. Yeah, and they can also call. They can also reach out for me if they are having difficulty because they're locked into an HMO or something. Um, they can reach out to me, and we'll make an arrangement that they can inexpensively get those lab tests ordered. That's incredible, Doctor Don. Thank you so much for that support. That's great. Yeah, people should be able to um, learn the newest stuff uh, in, in the old paradigm, the old medical paradigm. We used to think that we're our genes determine our destiny. And now by the science, we know, no, food is a lot to say about how we uh, turn it on and off those genes. Yeah, it's more the opposite. Our, our environment determines our genes, at least what's being yeah. read, not read. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you, Sandy. Thank uh-huh. you, and I wish you a good evening. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that. I'm honored. All right. All right take Bye care. for now. One of the complaints that I get a lot from my patients in the hospital, and you know, once you're in the hospital, you're in a, a giant factory. No matter how hard we work to humanize it, it has its clock, it has its gears, and it'll do you know really inhumane things like wake you up at three in the morning when you've just gotten to sleep to take your blood pressure because 
you're on every four hour of vital signs and that's just how it is. Or, well, you can think of a hundred things and I'm not here to rag on hospitals. But I am hoping that these new little robots that are being developed will take care of some of this. Uh, these have been invented uh, by a researcher named Wusu Kim at Simon Fraser University. And they have a, a, a lab called the Additive Manufacturing Lab. We're going to be doing some strange hard science and material science. I'm going to digress for a moment. If you haven't seen the National Geographic on origami uh, and the latest telescope as it unfurled its solar wings, it was definitely origami. But the National Geo has these wonderful slow motion images of flower blossoms unfolding and everything is, it's so clearly folded up and it grows in the folded up form and then unfurls very much like a butterfly's wing when it emerges from the chrysalis, right? Highly miraculous. But you can store a lot of stuff in a small package. And origami has some interesting uh, properties in that it can be, uh, it can expand and contract. It can be driven. Uh, it basically has its own built-in hinges, Right. So what they sought to do was replace traditional blood pressure monitoring procedure with the thing blowing up on your arm and then slowly dropping pressure. They designed a, a pad to be put on a humanoid sensing robot that the sensor pads were based on the underside of a leech, which is a really origami folded thing. It allows for suction and grasping and foldability and expansion and contraction. So they really thought that that adhesive feature that the leech has uh, could be used to set a sensor that would be sensitive enough to measure blood pressure. So the, the sensors are in, integrated onto the fingertips of a robot, and this can be positioned on the patient's chest. The sensors include an EKG, and a, fo- a photoplethysmogram. So what that is, is that by using the color change of the skin, you can tell when the blood is at its peak and when the blood is at its minimum. You can just see the pressure. And so using this and using algorithms that they derived, they've been able to essentially in- invent something that could, in the future at least, just crawl, crawl on, crawl on you, or maybe even just cuddle in bed with you, and then every four hours wake up, put its hand on your heart, and measure your blood pressure, and then in your sleep without waking you or disturbing you. The idea of having little, uh, well, they'll have to be cute. Okay, I insist they'll have to be cute and cuddly. These robots, but I bet you if they looked like kitty cats or uh, puppies that people would be totally willing to accept them and let them sleep on their chest and mon- and keep them from being awakened in the middle of the night uh, for a measurement which may be critical, but is certainly interfering with the healing process. So when you're in the hospital, one of the problems that we, one of the problems we have not fixed is how to get you to be able to have a good night's sleep. I'm going to roll to an email before the break. 
and remind you that you can send me an email to onair at ksqd.org. This is from Cheryl in uh, Santa Cruz. Cheryl writes, I'm postmenopausal, had an estrogen-positive breast cancer six years ago, and have osteoporosis. What medication, uh, if any, do you recommend? The side effects of all I've read are off-putting. Well, that's certainly true. There is uh, a lot. There's a lot of drugs that are promoted for osteoporosis, and I'm a, a skeptical. Uh, I'm a skeptic on some of some of them. The most commonly prescribed drug is a bisphosphonate. These are a class of drugs that, over time, change the characteristics of bone so that it's harder for the body to break it down. Therefore, balance, rebalancing the bone breakdown, bone uh, buildup dynamic, which should be equivalent, but often postmenopausally uh, deteriorate. A meta-analysis was published uh, just recently, and I just want to talk about this, because this is, this is the irony, and I totally agree with your skepticism here, Cheryl. This is the most common drug that women are told to take. In this meta-analysis, they looked at 23,000 women aged 63 to 74, and they determined the time to benefit to prevent fractures. So let's say uh, February 1st, I start taking this. How long before it prevents a fracture? How long, what are the odds it's going to prevent my fracture? So they followed the uh, participants for 48 months, and what they they found was a number needed to treat that really is underwhelming. Bisphosphonates would need to be given to 100 women, postmenopausal women, for 12 months to prevent one non-vertebral fracture. They'd need to be given to 200 postmenopausal women for with osteoporosis for 20 months to prevent one hip fracture, and for 12 months to prevent one clinical, so that's 200 women, to prevent one clinical vertebral fracture. So non, so vertebral fracture is the collapse fracture that causes you to bend forward and causes a lot of pain. And these bisphosphonates are, well, they cause a lot of reflux. You have to take them on an empty stomach. You have to be really careful. And God help you if you're on a thyroid agent and this, because it's going to be a long time in the morning before you can actually do anything. Once you take the bisphosphonate, you're supposed to remain upright. And even though they're, it's now available in injection, you still get an increase in esophagitis and GERD from the injection forms and also uh, other side effects. So why take that? Well, it's not my drug of choice. I have very almost no women on uh, bisphosphonates. Those that are on them are on them because they choose to follow another doctor's advice, which is fine by me. And there are other agents that are out there, and everything has side effects, okay? Let's just be clear. The quest, the natural stuff we've talked about many times on this show, calci- calcium, 500 milligrams twice a day, vitamin K2, at least 200 micrograms of MK7, D3, 5,000 units a day, weight-bearing exercise, jumping rope, walking, climb, going up and downstairs, but especially downstairs is great. I like the synthetic parathyroid hormone. It's called Forteo. And the reason this doesn't get as much buzz 
in the world is because it's an injection. You have to give yourself a shot. It's not a big shot. It's not a painful shot, but that's a real deal breaker for many people. And Forteo is very interesting because it's parathyroid hormone. It's synthetic parathyroid hormone. But parathyroid hormone ordinarily takes calcium out of the bones, right? That's why when people have a parathyroid hormone-producing tumor, they get osteoporosis from the tumor. But that tumor is producing a steady signal of parathyroid hormone. In Forteo, what you're doing is you're giving a burst shot, I believe it's once a week, and that's it. You you give a strong signal, and what that does is it slows down the effect of the normal levels of parathyroid hormone that are in that person's body. It basically temporarily deafens the receptors. And this is just, this is so how hormones work. Too much hormone, too much insulin, too much testosterone, you start to turn down the, the receptors. And when you lose receptors, you lose the ability to respond, then you've destroyed the signaling aspect that is what hormones are all about. So I really do think Forteo is underutilized and it, I hope as uh, I hope that it will be available to you. That depends an awful lot on your pharmacy benefit manager and whether your doctor is willing to say that you don't tolerate the bisphosphonates and therefore puts you into an eligibility group. Good luck to you. But if you have severe uh, or substantial osteoporosis, I think it's a, it will rebuild your bone and the benefits of the bisphosphonates are, they're there statistically, but in terms of the benefit to the individual, a number needed to treat of 200, that's pretty crazy. Oh, by the way, statins in someone who's never had a heart attack, if you, the number and time to treat, you have to put uh, 50 men who uh, have high, high cholesterol on a statin for 10 years to prevent one heart attack. So this number needed to treat thing it's always useful to think in terms of how many people do we do this to? What are the risks? And should we do it to everybody just for that, to help one in 50 people over 10 years' time? You got to ask, right? I'm excited about MRI technology. We're learning so much with this, and we're getting to the point where we can make a huge, huge uh, difference in developing countries. I talked a few weeks ago about cheaper, low-field MRI machines that are being made in, I think, Taiwan. And these can go in and get plugged into 110. They don't need a special power outlet. And while the images aren't as crisp, they're good enough to identify things like brain bleeds and, and tumors. Well, this latest bit of science uh, using meta-materials, and I'll tell you what that is in a moment, uh, well, like I said, it's origami robots, or robots with origami fingertips checking your blood pressure. And this is a bicycle helmet that you put on before you get into the MRI machine, which drastically improves the, revolution, the resolution of the image. It's, a, it's made of something called a meta material, and this is a new science. 
It's a conglomeration of physics, engineering, mathematical know-how, and also geometry. So this helmet was developed at uh, Boston University uh, by Sin, Sin Shan. They're experts there at metamaterials. This is defined as a type of engineered structure created from small unit cells that are alone, but when you group them together in a precise way, you get new superpowers not found in nature. For example, and in this case, what's key, the metamaterials can bend, absorb, or manipulate waves such as magnetic waves, sound waves, or radio waves. Each unit cell is called a resonator, and they're usually arranged in a repeating pattern of rows and columns. They can be designed in different sizes and shaped, placed at different orientation, depending on the waves that they're designed to influence, and basically act like a lens. It's like getting a pair of glasses for your low-resolution MRI machine. So Zhang's a professor of electrical and computer engineering, biomedical engineering, material science, and engineering, got five PhDs, geez, has designed uh, an acoustical metamaterial that blocks sound without stopping airflow. So imagine quieter air conditioners. That'd be a step forward for mankind. Magnetic, um, this magnetic medic material can drastically improve the quality of the MRI machines, and they found a way to turn it into a hat, a dome-shaped device that allows CRISPR images at twice the normal speed. And if you've ever had an MRI, being told that the amount of time you're going to spend in there is going to get cut in half sounds really good. It's fashioned from a series of magnetic metamaterial resonators. These are 3D printed plastic tubes wrapped in copper wiring, grouped on an array, and precisely arranged to channel the magnetic field of the MRI machine. It's literally a plastic lens to improve the resolution of your MRI. And just when you thought that the weird science couldn't get crazier, now we're moving into biohybrid fish made from human cardiac cells. Harvard researchers, in collaboration with colleagues from Emory University, have developed the first fully autonomous biohybrid fish from human stem cell-derived cardiac muscle cells. Let me just say that again. Autonomous biohybrid fish from human stem cell-derived cardiac muscle cells. The artificial fish swims by recreating the muscle contractions of a pumping heart, bringing researchers one step closer to developing a more complex artificial muscular pump. Our ultimate goal is to build an artificial heart to replace a malformed heart in a child, said Kit Parker, the Tar family professor of engineering and applied physics at Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and the senior author of the paper. Rather than using heart imaging as a blueprint, we're identifying the key biophysical principles that make the heart work, using them as design criteria, replicating them in a system, a living, swimming fish, where it's much easier to see if we're successful. So back in 2012, the lab used cardiac muscle cells from rats to build a jellyfish-like biohybrid pump that pumped fluid, basically a jellyfish. And in 2016, they developed a swimming artificial uh, stingray using rat muscle cells. In this research, 
they wanted to go to a more complex motion. And this is very, very cool. Uh, Stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes are the the cells that make up the heart. They are a muscle cell and a nerve cell, both. They can generate a, a nerve impulse and they can respond to it. So it makes it perfect for you know, creating something like this. They decided to use the shape and swimming motion of a zebrafish. And this particular hybrid has two layers of muscle cells, one on each side of the tail fin. When one cell contracts, of course, that stretches the other side. Just think of the move of how a fish tail goes back and forth in the water. Well, that stretch opens a mechanosensitive protein channel that causes an inflow of ions into the cell, which triggers a contraction, which causes a stretch on the other side of the tail, which triggers a contraction on that side. So you get a closed loop system that propels the fish forward. And these, and these fish last for more than a hundred days and I presume they're feeding them somehow, uh, but maybe they're just fl- flying around in a nutrient-rich uh, broth. I didn't get that deep into the weeds. But they created a cycle where each contraction uh, automatically results in a contraction on the opposite side, like a volley in tennis or, or um, ping pong. They also engineered an autonomous pacer, like a pacemaker, which was able to control the frequency and rhythm of the spontaneous contractions, keeping them, for example, from going into, well, the uh, zebrafish equivalent of atrial fibrillation, or locking up both in contraction at the same time. So fish can live longer, move move faster, and swim more efficiently, and this biohybrid fish actually gets better as it gets older. Its muscles build, its contraction amplitude, its swimming speed, and its coordination all increased for the first month after they were released into the the lab. And eventually, they get to the point where their speeds and swimming efficiency are similar to zebrafish in the wild. This is the the final mic drop comment from the uh, researcher. Um, I could build a model heart out of Play-Doh, but it doesn't mean I can build a heart. You can grow some random tumor cells in a dish until they curdle into a throbbing lump and call it a cardiac organoid. But neither of those efforts is going to, by design, recapitulate the physics of a system that beats over a billion times during your lifetime while simultaneously rebuilding its cells on the fly. That's the challenge. That's where we go to work. Mic drop, right? I think he has. Uh, he should be proud of himself. I'm gonna let. Him, I'm gonna let him uh, have his his moment of mic drop glory. Uh, it's pretty amazing and interesting work. This email came, and didn't get to it last week, from Jim in Santa Cruz. And uh, Jim sent me a link to an outfit called Prenuvo. And in case you haven't noticed, taking the doctor out of the loop and going doing direct-to-consumer medical services is a, a very, very big thing. There's lots of startup money, lots of people trying to do this. Prenuvo is basically a chain of MRI scanners. And I uh, presume that they are offering competitive rates and not billing insurance. Uh, that I could not see that there was any evidence that they took insurance. 
But then again, they're undercutting what you would pay if you go to your local hospital and pay for an MRI. Uh, and pay for an MRI. And what Jim wanted to know is sh- they have a total body scan that's supposed to find all cancers larger than uh, 1.5 centimeters. And I, since an MRI doesn't have any radiation, do you, you know, it, what do you think? Should I do this? I think the scan, if I'm recalling correctly, because I did check the prices, was in the low 1,000s. So affordable for most of us if uh, we save up. But the question is, is there a benefit and is there a harm? And in the case of in the in the case of MRIs, there are a few a few situations where an early MRI might save your life. I have one patient, for example, who had a early pancreatic cancer that was had not spread and was quite early and was picked up on an MRI done for an entirely different reason. But those cases are extremely rare. Should the problem with these are the false positives. And we've talked about this problem a few times, but Jim, I'm going to try to frame it uh, so it, it makes sense. Let's suppose that there is, let's suppose that the MRI finds a lump and the lump's in a difficult place and you're not sure if, you're not sure what it is. So they'll say, well, you know, let's check it again in three months and see if it's growing. And then if it's growing, you sort of feel like you have to go get some tissue to see what it is. And that, of course, could be very invasive. And you, first of all, you're worried. So there's the hit to your head. But second of all, if you choose not to chase it, then it's there in the back of your head what it might be. If you choose to chase it, then you may end up dying as a result of the complication of the effort being made to get tissue so we can prove it's not cancer. And that gets to be a really dicey situation. So false positives. MRIs have lots of false positives, lots of things that aren't diseases that they turn up. And let's suppose that that happens 10% of the time, meaning that 10% of the positive findings are, and this is generous, being generous to the MRI, by the way, 10% of the positive findings are actually not true. They're, they're fake. Now, the diseases that we're looking for are fairly rare. So let's pick a disease that maybe occurs in one in a hundred thousand people. And let's suppose that we do that MRI in a hundred thousand people. Well, one of those, one of those positives are going to be uh, a, a true positive, but we're also going to have we're also going to have 10% false positives, which means in that 100,000 people, we're, we're going to have 10,000 false positives and one true positive. Is it still looking good to you to do this test? So I don't feel that indiscriminately chasing you know, cancer with a full body scan is a sensible path. I, I think it will lead to many false positives, many unnecessary surgeries, and when you finally you know, do, the, do the prospective trial and add up how many people you killed looking for stuff they didn't have, I'm a little bit afraid that the morbidity from 
the consequences of the test will be greater than the benefit from finding the occasional rare thing. We have time for some more cool science, and I'm going to, I have three here that I put in. We're doing lots of material science tonight, so I'm going to group them all together. Um, Synthetic tissue has just been created that can repair hearts, muscles, and vocal cords. And essentially, uh, healing can be very difficult. And uh, things like the heart, you know, the heart beats, vocal cords move. And like our previous guy was saying, you have to understand how this, how it manages to repair itself on the fly. But when we try to reply it, repair it ourselves, we don't have that skill yet. So uh, recently developed is an injectable hydrogel. It's basically a biomaterial that provides like a sponge and cells can, can uh, migrate into it and pass through it to repair. So those fibroblasts that are in your body tissue that wake up when you cut yourself and start to heal that cut, if you've ever had a bad wound, you know you get a kind of, ye- of yellow spongy material. That's the fibroblasts getting in there and just filling it. Well, they've, they've skipped that step, and now they're doing it as an injectable. Uh, they really uh, are aiming at vocal cord repair because uh, you, you can't really, like if you have a vocal cord nodule and it's removed, often there's a scar left on the vocal cord that alters the voice. And so being, having something that's very porous and very strong has been a bit of a holy grail. And so another hydrogel-based technology is uh, probably, well, think about it this way, that those, all of those diapers with those highly, highly absorbent materials in them, those hydrogels, uh, they're more than just there to soak up urine. Uh, researchers here managed to develop a hydrogel-based flexible brain machine interface. Instead of putting an electrode in the brain uh, or, tre- or trying to treat neurological diseases, it would be great to be able to detect signals in real time. But when you try to put in an electrode, it causes a foreign body response and you get scar tissue forming around the interface, which interferes with your ability for, uh, for it to function. This is becoming a problem over time with the vagus nerve implants, for example. So they've been able to essentially ins- get, get a hydrogel tube and insert a fiber bundle into it. It's an optical fiber, so it controls nerve cells with light and so you can do optogenic, optogenetic procedures. This is a great way to research neuroplasticity and do work in the brain. And uh, they've been using this in animal models, and it's holding up for over six months. So significant improvement allowing us to do more research. And one less material science one before you go. A new copper surface that kills bacteria a hundred times faster and more effective than standard copper could help com- combat the glowing, the growing threat of antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Again, shape and structure make a big difference. A standard copper surface will kill about ninety 
7% of golden staff within four hours. But when they used their specially designed copper surface, it designed, it killed more than 99% of the golden staff or staff aureus within two minutes. So 120 times faster. It, it's a copper that's composed of comb-like microscale cavities. Within each tooth of that comb structure, there's smaller and smaller cavities. This gives it a massive, massive uh, surface area. It's made using a special casting process where copper and manganese atoms are cajoled into specific crystalline-like formations. Not crystalline, of course, but close enough. Uh, This pattern makes the surface very water-loving or hydrophilic, much more so than copper. So water lies on it as a flat film rather than forming droplets. That's a effectively means that the bacterial cells are being kind of forced, uh, stretched uh, over the surface and having a larger amount of their surface area exposed to the copper. And it really speeds up the degradation of bacterial cells. I would love to, uh, I would love to see all of the surfaces that are in the hospital that I have to touch, like the elevator buttons and the banisters and the doorknobs, I, I would love to have. The, uh, I would love to have those there in uh, our setting. I hope that they can get the price down. But you know, nothing lasts forever. So a popular treatment, nano silver, uh, may. Uh, we're starting to see the emergence of uh, some resistance. In the great game of 3D chess between man and microbes, our latest uh, gambit has just been blocked by none other than that evil genius Pseudomonas Pseudomonas Originosa, one of the great grandmasters of all time in the game of human versus bacteria chess. Now, nanosilver is a potent antimicrobial. It's used in devices like internal catheters and wound dressings. And it's uh, being incorporated into all kinds of consumer products, even soap and toothpaste and washing machines and fridges. But uh, recently, uh, uh, there, it was observed that Pseudomonas aeruginosa, in its biofilm form of growth, has a new, uh, a new adaptation. It's, it kills, it isn't 100% uh, any longer. More and more of the Pseudomonas have learned somehow how to avoid being killed by silver. By this, funny about that, the silver bullet, at least for bacteria, really did turn out to be a thing. So we've got uh, checking for email. We have one more email from uh, one of my listeners who is on the podcast and who reached out at my website, askdrdon.com. During the week, if you think of something or want to know, want me to cover it on the next week's show, all you have to do is go to askdrdon.com and click the messages link, and we'll be happy to uh, take care of it. Or if we feel it, it warrants it. Sometimes I don't always respond, uh, particularly if I feel the source of the article is spurious or uh, politically slanted. And that's my prerogative. So please don't be offended if I don't respond on the air. So, uh, this one from David in Scotts Valley. 
uh, can general anesthesia trigger dementia? And he attached an article that is a popular science article, but it, it made me want to talk about the, uh, about anesthesia and the broad variety of, uh, anecdotal evidence that is abounds in the cases of people with existing neurocognitive disease. Now, I think that if you already have Parkinson's disease or you already have Alzheimer's, you've lost all of your reserve and anything that impairs, that impairs function is going to impair it for longer. But elderly patients often exhibit something called post-operative cognitive decline. Uh, they have lapses in memory and attention, and it usually lasts for as, as much as a few weeks. That's a long time. And what's recent information is that anesthesia actually can increase the buildup of proteins uh, ca- that cause neurological diseases. So when you knock out the brain with general anesthesia, you knock out the neural networks that enable communication between the regions. And these molecules uh, that, that create anesthesia also trigger other mechanisms that have nothing to do with anesthesia itself. Uh, one researcher at the University of California, Irvine, Lou Odino, has found that anesthesia set off a chemical cascade triggering the release of microglia. These are... The microglia are the macrophages of the brain, but if they're activated for long periods, they inflame the brain. And we know that this is a huge part of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Another researcher exposed mice to inhaled anesthetics and found that it accelerated the buildup of amyloid beta. Another study found the same thing with tau protein. And now, these are mutant mice. These are designed to, to accumulate uh amyloid beta, so they have abnormal amyloid beta, so they are not like older Parkinson's disease patients. The mice are more like early Parkinson's disease patients who have a mutated amyloid precursor protein. Nevertheless, uh, there are epidemiologic studies that say, no, there's no link. Uh, and I think it's when you get enough numbers, if you do a big study, 900 people, you're, it's probably going to wash out. In my opinion, People who are genetically predisposed to dementia or have other risk factors uh, should probably do, where possible, spinal anesthesia or conscious sedation. Until we know more, it's better to play it safe than sorry. And if it's a hip replacement or a knee replacement, you can definitely do it with a spinal. And Dave, I think you probably should. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.